This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. We start with a review of the Thrift Savings Plan's first quarter results. Investments can change seemingly as fast as the weather, something plan holders have learned or relearned pretty dramatically over the last couple of years. But things are looking up generally, as I discussed earlier with certified financial planner Art Stein. And let's talk about the last quarter of the TSP. I think at the end of last year, people were saying, happy days are here again, but I don't know. It doesn't quite look that way, does it? Well, this last quarter was a whole lot better than uh, last year where everything except the G fund had a solidly negative rate of return. And at least for the first three months of the year, everything has a positive rate of return. Uh, One unusual thing is that the I fund, the international stock fund, outperformed uh, both the U.S. stock funds. And actually, that same thing is true over the last 12 months, where the U.S. stock funds are negative and the I fund is positive. And of course, that's something that we're seeing in international stocks just in general, that they've just had a very good quarter. Uh, One of the reasons being is that they've been beaten down so much that they've become quite a good buy. And international covers a lot of territory. Are these this particular I-Fund, the TSP I-Fund, is that mostly centered in Europe? Or does it have South America and maybe some African country, Asian countries? No. uh, The international stock fund, the I-Fund, the index that's used, doesn't cover a lot of territory. It's very narrowly focused. It's European countries, 25% is in British stocks. And then various other European countries, 25% is in Japanese stocks, and then Australia, New Zealand. But for some reason, no investments in Canada, which I've never understood, which pretty much is a developed market as far as I'm concerned. Because that's the other thing about the international, the I-Fund in the TSP. It's only developed countries. So there's no investments in Latin America, many Asian countries outside Japan. TSP tried to change that to go to an index that made more sense, but they would were blocked by Congress because the index they were going to use uh, invested in Chinese stocks. And so it became a political issue, which, and I understand it, and actually relations with China are much worse now than they were when this whole controversy took place. So it's probably a good thing they didn't switch to that index, but it would be nice if they could switch to an index, broader coverage, but no China. All right. So the iFund, then, to get back to whatever it is, interesting Great Britain and Japan, two of the sort of shrinking and low-growth nations of the world. Exactly. This is the problem. But the stocks at least did well in the last quarter. Yeah, yeah. And and what about the rest of the funds? I mean, the G fund, we know what that does. But besides the I and the uh, U.S. index, what are the other choices and how do they do? Well, we should mention the G fund just for a second because with the increase in interest rates, uh, the G fund return has, uh, you know, was really quite good. Uh, it was one percent for the quarter, you know, which is great. And um, bond fund was up three percent. 
C fund up seven and a half and the S fund was up 6%. So just a really great quarter. And so for the people who were patient and stayed invested in those funds and didn't run to the G fund, they were definitely rewarded. Right. So then the classic kind of distribution that people had for many, many years seems to be coming back into the vogue or at least the good way to approach it for the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, these kinds of returns where the stock funds, you know, have about twice the rate of return of the bond funds or even more when you look at the G fund. Historically, that's what we've seen over long periods of time, and that's why stocks have been a good investment for long-term investors, because they did have a much higher rate of return than the bond funds. Now, past performance, no guarantee of future performance, but uh, there's no reason to think that will not continue. And let's talk about that G fund now. It has exceeded the popularity of the C fund? Yeah. You know, for many years, the G fund was by far the most popular fund. And that gradually changed over time. So in 2009, almost 50% of TSP investments were in the G fund. And less than 25% were in the C fund, which has always been the next most popular fund. But the percentage in G gradually declined, and the percentage in C gradually increased until just about in 2021, the percentage invested in C actually exceeded G for the first time uh, ever. But since the market started declining, G funds become more popular C funds become less popular. Now there is once again more in G than C, which is an S&P 500 stock index fund. And it's not by a big amount, not by a large amount, but still I notice it because it makes me think that people are reacting to the decline in stocks by selling, you know, maybe after the stocks have gone down, uh, you know, getting nervous, selling at a loss, putting their money in G. And then the question becomes, well, when are they going to, you know, switch that? When are they going to go back to the stock funds? And most people don't. I mean, you know, my experience by far, most people never go back into uh, the stock funds once they pull out. Could it be also that people simply stopped putting in the C and for that duration of that horrible year of 2022, diverted what would have gone into the C as new investments, you know, their deductions from their payroll toward investment, went to the G instead of the C, and therefore the G kind of caught up. I mean, we can't necessarily say that it was withdrawals from the C in favor of the G. It just could have been a cessation of contributions to the C, whereas people went to the G instead because that did pretty well in 2022 relative to everything else. I agree completely. We don't know. And, um, you know, be very interesting, you know, if someone was able to do a poll or something of TSP investors. Uh, the other problem that I have is TSP releases a graph with these percentages, but they don't release a table that shows the per- actual exact percentages over time, like on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. 
if they did, that would allow us to actually analyze uh, investment flows, compare it to uh, stock market uh, increases and decreases. You know, it would be a very interesting way to look at it. But we can't do that, so we can't. All right. And while we have you, what's going on with the mutual fund window? That really is, uh, to me, a very uh, interesting situation. So the mutual fund window was open last year in June, and it allowed a certain amount, not a large amount, but a certain amount of funds in the TSP to invest it in a range of around four or 5,000 different mutual funds. And, you know, there are a lot of details on that, and the amount that can be taken out is limited. But what I noticed, and this is in the uh, January 31st statistical report that the uh, board puts out, the Federal Retirement Investment Board, I think it's saying, that in June, when the mutual fund window started, there was almost $60 million invested. And that has declined now to where there's only, there's less than 20 million invested, which is a big decline. The other thing, but at the same time, the number of accounts has um, increased from 1,000 to, I don't know, it's about 3,000. So it's like more people putting in smaller amounts, much smaller amounts. You know, to me, that's just a very surprising result. Well, now the mutual fund window is something that's also available in 401ks in the private sector. And my understanding is, you know, from what I've read, is that in general, in 401ks, some people take advantage of it, but it's not a very popular option. It certainly includes, uh, it requires more work, more knowledge, trying to compare 5,000 different mutual funds, you know, not an easy thing to do. But for people who, for instance, wanted to invest in ESG funds, environmentally correct funds, politically or socially correct funds, even religious, the religiously based funds, and they are out there, it does allow them to do that. But it doesn't appear that much money is going to that in the TSP. And that's kind of been the experience in the private sector, too. Well, federal investors are simply conservative investors, not politically, but financially. Uh, could be, but I don't know why the number is going down. You know, that was my surprise. I don't know why the number, uh, the dollar amount is declining. Again, we just don't know. Certified financial planner Art Stein. We'll take a short break, and when we return, some advice for military members and their spouses now that a type of tax on the books for 50 years and known as the widow's tax has disappeared. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Congress in 2020 repealed something known as the Survivors Benefit Plan Dependency and Indemnity Compensation Offset, better known as the Widow's Tax. It disappeared after a three-year phase-out ending earlier this year. 
That move opened a once-in-a-generation opportunity for veterans. I discussed this with Mike Meese, president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. So the SBPDIC offset, what was it and what happened to it? Well, uh, it is a mouthful, but uh, what we're talking about is the benefits for the survivors, the spouses of military retirees. And right now there's over 2 million people that are military retirees. And so presumably most of them have 2 million spouses. And your military retired pay ends when you pass away. Congress passed a law back in 1972 allowing a survivor benefit plan so that you can pay part of your retired pay in so that your widow or widower would receive 55% of your pay, and that's the survivor benefit plan. The challenge was that if you also died of something that was related to your military service, you would also be eligible for dependence indemnity compensation from the Veterans Administration. And Congress, the previous law, would offset that dollar for dollar. So that was called the widow's tax, where Congress thought that it wasn't fair that people who died of the service-connected condition would also then have their retired annuity reduced. Got it. So the dependency and indemnity compensation came from VA, and that would offset the survivor benefit plan that would otherwise come from the Defense Department. Exactly. In the Defense Authorization Act of 2020, Congress recognized that that was not fair. And so, as you mentioned, phased that out over three years so that now the survivor benefit plan is actually more valuable than it was before because it, it used to have an offset. Some people some people may not have opted in to taking the survivor benefit plan because they thought they would get a disability payment. Now that you can get both the disability payment if you die of a service-connected condition and your retiree benefits, people have the opportunity if they want to for a one-time ability to opt into the survivor benefit plan, but it's only available to military retirees during this year, the year 2023, and they have to apply to it. And I can describe that a little bit more. Yeah. What do they specifically have to do then? Well, what any military retiree would have to go to the defense finance and accounting website, dfast.mil, and it's easy there. Click on the retiree. And then on the bottom left-hand side, there's a big tab that says SBP 2023 open season. And it explains the instructions there. It is a little bit complicated. Let me just explain it in case anybody is interested in it. If you have not opted in to the survivor benefit plan and you want to do that, then you click on that link and you fill out a form. Uh, of course, the government has forms. And send that into DFAS. DFAS will then tell you how much you would have to pay in to buy into the survivor benefit plan. Again, had you opted in as you retired from the military, you would have been paying up to 6.5% of your retired pay. So they will calculate what would 6.5% of your retired be pay B for the, let's say you retired 20 years ago for the last 20 years, how much would you have to pay in a lump sum or they'll allow you to pay it over 12 months so that you can then have that opportunity to buy into the survivor benefit plan. Right. So the result will be that if you render your spouse a widow or widower, that person would then continue to get the full benefit of your pay had you lived. 
almost, they would end up getting 55% of your retired pay. So if your retired pay is, let's say, $1,000, just to make the math easy, they would get a check for $550 for the remainder of their life. We're speaking with Mike Meese. He is president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. So in other words, you can retroactively get that coverage for this one-time period. That's right. Normally, you have to make an irrevocable decision at the time of retirement. And so people who opted out and didn't choose SBP may find themselves 20 years later in a different circumstance. And let me just describe to you what those circumstances may be. You know, 20 years ago, somebody may have said, well, gee, my wife, if they're a male, my wife is substantially older than me, or maybe she has more illnesses than me, and I don't want to opt in because I don't think that would make sense. Well, you may have had a health condition, or you may have some reason why you may think that you may predecease your spouse earlier, and so consequently, your health conditions may have changed from the time that you made that decision in retirement. And again, when you made that decision, it was an irrevocable decision. Now, this is the one time in your lifetime where you may be able to revisit that decision, which may be applicable for some retired military members so that they can opt in now. And how does the dependency and indemnity compensation payment, how does that figure into the whole equation? How do you get yeah. that from VA? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Dependent indemnity compensation is paid to you if you die either on active duty or from a service-connected condition. And so obviously dying on active duty, it's obvious the VA will continue to pay that to you. But we end up nowadays, uh, several people are dying who served in the Vietnam War. And uh, if they served at any point in Vietnam, the VA presumes that they were exposed to Agent Orange, and there's a list of 13 or now up to 16 conditions that are presumptively related to Agent Orange, everything from dementia to prostate cancer to other diseases. So if you die and those diseases contributed to your death, that is just as if you had died in Vietnam or on active duty, and your spouse would be eligible for tax-free dependent indemnity compensation from the VA, which right now is valued at, uh, or it's $1,563 per month, and that goes up every year by a cost of living increase. Right. So that could also potentially apply to the burn pit people from Iraq and Afghanistan. Exactly. My view is burn pits are going to be my generation's equivalent of Agent Orange exposure. You know, I sir, I was over in Iraq and Afghanistan for about 32 months, and uh, you can hear some of the hoarseness in my voice. I have no idea whether this is going to get worse, but I probably will for myself or my contemporaries. And so that's why that DIC is very important. And if you have survivor benefit plan, your spouse is going to be eligible for both SBP from DFAS and the DIC from the VA. So in your case, it's not that box of Dutch masters every month, but it's <laughs> no. something from over there. Yeah, so this, exactly. And so the year, uh, getting back to the uh, applying for that benefit under the uh, survivor benefit plan, the year ends this calendar year? Uh, that's exactly right. And it's a two-step process. You apply to the DFAS, the Defense Finance and Accounting Service. They do the calculations. They send that back to you. And then you have to buy in either in a lump sum or paid over 12 months. In many cases, people 
again, you, in order to get this, you would be getting retired pay anyway. People will have this deducted from their retired pay so that uh, it'll be a financial crunch this year, but it may provide substantial benefits for your spouse. Again, if and only if the military member dies prior to the spouse. Right. And do we know what a payment might look like? Say someone is going to retire is just to pick a mid-grade there, lieutenant colonel. Yeah, a, a lieutenant colonel, it, a lot depends upon how long ago you retired. It's amazing when you think about how much of the retired pay is. We had one individual who retired about 30 years ago, so they've missed 30 years of payments. That payment's going to be over $100,000 that they would have to make to be in there. On the other hand, if their spouse outlives them by five or six or seven years, the spouse will get well over that amount back in the payments. Now, if you only retired five years ago, obviously there's much less to pay in, and then they would just take the six and a half percent out of your retired pay going forward. So like any insurance type of decision, there is a risk management process here. There's a, I mean, it's, it's insurance as much as a benefit in some ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, here at AFMA, we provide whole life insurance and that kind of thing. We'd love to compare it with insurance. The big difference with the survivor benefit plan annuity is it increases based upon Congress's authorization of COLA going forward for retirees. Whereas if you got an insurance plan that, again, I would be happy to sell you, if that's a $500,000 policy, that'll be a $500,000 policy even 20 years from now. It will not go up with inflation, sure. which is one of the advantages of, and why many people select the survivor benefit plan and if their family is financially dependent upon them. And by the way, selling whole life, that makes you almost like the last of the Mohicans. <laughs> There's not a lot to do that. What we really do is focus on survivor benefits. So that's why talking with you and advising people so that if anybody does have any questions, they can go to our website, afma.com, or give us a call. That's aafmaa.com, and we can uh, answer any questions they have. Or if they've got a financial advisor who knows military issues, we definitely recommend that people talk with a qualified financial advisor who can give them the right kinds of analysis that they need for this. Mike Meese, president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. Well, that's it for this week's FedLife. We'll return next week with ways to generate more million-dollar TSP accounts. Until then, I'm Tom Tammen. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.